Those of us who have a Bible, then let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read from the first verse, Exodus 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." So we've been looking at this story, we've been tracing the history of God's people as he uh, comes to them when they are slaves in Egypt, but really not a nation, just a a group of people who are used in great building projects. Uh, They hadn't invented JCBs yet, so they use these people. They're just the people who do the work. Uh, They're not really regarded almost as human. They're treated cruelly. Uh, But their cry in their suffering reaches God, and God comes and sets them free. And uh, he he raises up a leader, Moses, who leads them out of Egypt. The Red Sea parts, they go through the water, the water closes behind them. They're free, they move on then through the desert to Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God reveals himself to them. God is going to show them what it means to live his way, what, what God's requirements are, God's standards, his laws. Uh, but before he comes into that, he reveals something about his own character. Uh, and we see that, we've looked at it over recent weeks. God is a God who speaks, doesn't just leave us to work things out for ourselves. He speaks, he uses words to communicate with us, so we know things clearly. We're not left guessing. He's a God who saves. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He saves his people and he is a God who is unique. You shall have no other gods before me. There are many gods in the world, but only one living God. There is only one God, as we've been reminded several times this morning, only one God who created everything. He's before everything and he will be there right through from everlasting to everlasting. He's a God who is unique. Then in the midst of this declaration of what God is like, there's something said that is perhaps rather strange to us, Uh, but it's what I feel to look at this morning in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them. It said you will not make yourself for yourself an idol and so on. You'll not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. When we hear that, we can think, hmm, well, that's not very nice, really. When we think of someone being jealous, we think of someone who's perhaps in a bit of a sulk, someone who is envious and uh, just they see what someone else has got and they're jealous. Uh, And we think it's not a good quality indeed. If we think it's not a good quality, the Bible indeed would lead us to believe that because in Galatians 5 and verse uh, 20, Uh, The context is the acts of the sinful nature. And what are those acts? Well, among them, it says idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, 
fits of rage, selfish ambition, and so on, drunkenness. In the midst of all of that, jealousy. These are the acts of the sinful nature. Things to be avoided, things to put away. And then it goes on to speak about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. But jealousy, bad news. This is the flesh. This is the sinful nature. Well, what about this then? When God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Is he confessing a, a fault here? Is he about saying, well, you know, no one's perfect? Of course not. He is holy. And yet he says he is jealous. Jealousy can be a good quality. It's generally amongst us a bad quality, but not always. It can be a good quality. And God, this is not the only time when God refers to himself as being jealous. In the uh, prophet Zechariah, for example, Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 14, God says to his people, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And it's in the context of God blessing them. He says, I'm jealous for you. So what does that mean? And then in Zechariah 8 also, chapter 8 and verse 2. In Zechariah 8 verse 2. Again, uh, the heading is, the Lord promises to bless Jerusalem. And he says, I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. Clearly, a good quality. It's not only there in the Old Testament, it's also there in the New. In, when Paul's writing to his friends in Corinth, in his second letter to Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. So there you are, a godly jealousy. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you, you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. I'm jealous for you. How, how can it be a good quality? Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, a long time ago, I was young. And I thought I'd fallen in love. I asked this young lady if she'd like to go out with me. She blushed and said yes. Violins played in the background. And so we went out together many times. We, she and I were an item. And then saw the way she looked at another guy. Saw the way he looked at her. I was jealous. She was supposed to be with me. What's she doing looking at him like It's not Mary, incidentally. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Need to make that one clear. <laughs> What's she doing looking at this other guy? I realized I've got a rival. I was jealous. That's an appropriate reaction. When there should be a relationship that is kind of exclusive, and suddenly... There's someone else, a rival. God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What he means is, I'm not having any rivals. I want, I love you, and I don't want to share you with anyone else. That's, it's talking not about a bad quality, but about a wonderful quality of strong love. 
exclusive love, holy love. Because God is a holy God. And when I tell you that story about that girl, and of course it all broke up because of how she thought about this other guy. And I just paused to over, sort of get over the wave of sympathy that just hit me. Um, <laughs> but it's not, it, it, it's not a bad illustration because that is how God speaks of his people as if his people are his wife. And what you see in the Old Testament is that Israel, God's people, are presented as a wife flirting with other men. An unfaithful wife. And God says to his people, I'm a jealous God. I, I love you and I want you to love only me. I don't want rivals. I don't want you looking elsewhere. But the nation consistently did. And so the, the prophets continually, that's the kind of word they bring to God's people. It is this picture of Israel being like a wife looking elsewhere. So in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, God says, uh, so Jeremiah 3, looking in the wrong place, Jeremiah 3 and verse 14 God says, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. You're faithless, he says, but I'm your husband. The prophet Hosea uses that picture again and again. Indeed, God got Hosea to kind of live out this by marrying someone who was going to be unfaithful to him as a picture of how God had chosen Israel and Israel consistently goes after other lovers. That's how God presents it and that's how God reveals himself right at the start. He wants them to know right from day one his love for them is exclusive and he's not prepared to share his people with anyone else because that is wrong. He is a jealous God. See, marriage is an exclusive relationship. Back in the Old Testament, when God creates the first man and the first woman and brings them together in marriage, he declares them one flesh. You don't get more exclusive than that. The two become one flesh. It's a, a covenant, a commitment of faithfulness. It's a relationship. Marriage is a relationship to be guarded as something very precious and fragile. You can't just assume because a couple have made vows to each other, well, that's it. That's fine. And, you know, they go off into the sunset and they're going to live happily ever after. No, 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 no. They've made a commitment that now is precious and fragile and it's got to be guarded. That there is no room for a third party. There is no room for anything or anyone to come between those two. They are one flesh. And that is a picture of how God is with his people. A relationship to be guarded. A precious thing. But a fragile thing because we can very easily get distracted and we find other things have come in the way. And, and so that's the history of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New. And if we're honest, God will say, can be our history as well, that we make promises to God, we make commitments to him, and then things happen, and just things get a bit kind of stale. Our relationship with God can get a bit cold, and other things come in. God says, 
to his people about the quality of his love. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is a wonderful quality of God's exclusive love. And it's in the context, isn't it, of I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. What God is saying is he has redeemed them from slavery. He has seen them as a people who are just not a people. They're they're nobodies. They're just dispensable, disposable. They're people who can be used by the controlling powers, used and abused. And it doesn't matter if they live or die. They're nobodies. And God sees these people and he chooses them to be his people. That's just how God is. Chooses people who got nothing much to offer, who the world wouldn't even reckon on. And he says, you're my people. And having saved them, having demonstrated amazing love, he says, I've rescued you for relationship. Not rescued you just so you can be free and do your own thing. I've rescued you, chosen you for relationship. And the quality of that relationship is, it's exclusive. God says, you are now mine because I, I called you, I saved you. You, you weren't anybody, but I, I've made you mine. Now, treasure that. Guard that. It's an incredible, amazing privilege. That was how it was for them. And of course, it's even more so for us. God has demonstrated his love for us. That when we were sinners... Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for them by bringing them out of Egypt, opening the Red Sea, bringing them through safely. He's demonstrated his love for us in the form of his son, nailed on a cross, hanging there and dying, not just dying in incredible physical pain, but dying in unbelievable spiritual agony as his father rejects him. Rejects him at the moment of his greatest obedience? How can this be? Yes, but at the moment of his greatest obedience, he has taken all our filthy sin on himself, and a holy God averts his eyes, and his wrath is on his son. Jesus dies suffering in our place. God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rescued for relationship. Not just so we will go to heaven ultimately, but so that we relate with God in this love relationship. He chose us. And Paul depicts it like that, doesn't he? In, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he is addressing the various people, the groups of people in the church in Ephesus to whom he is writing, and he speaks about marriage and addressing the husbands in Ephesians 5.25 he says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Christ won for himself a love relationship Christ purchased for himself on the cross a bride the church is his bride husbands love your wives like that what a calling What a calling to be a husband and to to be given the task, the privilege of modeling what Christ is like. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? He's nailed on a cross for her. 
He died for her. He gave himself up for her. And he gave himself up for a bride. He rescued us for relationship with him. And now he doesn't want to see us looking elsewhere. He doesn't want rivals. That is so inappropriate and terrible to be won by love like that, to have the Son of God loving us and choose to look elsewhere. How can we do that? Now, God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We haven't come into a casual relationship. We haven't come into an open relationship. We've come into an exclusive love relationship. And God says, I want you to know this. I'm a jealous God. That's not bad news. That's wonderful, wonderful good news. God's not going to look elsewhere. And he doesn't want us to look elsewhere. He's chosen us for himself. And so, he says here, you will have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. So, no other gods, not what the Lord among other gods, and equally not to make any representation of God. Which, of course, as we've said, when we looked at that, people love to do. Down through history, people have uh, chosen, they've said, it helps me to worship God if I, if I have a, a cross or if I have whatever, some idol, some shrine, some whatever. People love to make things to represent God. God says, you won't do that. Simply because God is greater than anything. And if we, if we make, notice the verbs there, you make you bow down, you worship. There's a process there of making something just as an aid to worship. You make something. Oh, but then you start bowing down to it. And then you start serving it. It's a process of increasing attachment, a process of transferring affection. And again, one has seen that happen. One has seen it happen where People begin to they transfer their affection from God, although they're singing songs to God and so on, they transfer their affection to a building or to even furniture in the building. And or just we, we, we so easily transfer affection or a particular form of worship or whatever. And God says, No, I'm a jealous God. You don't transfer your affection to anything. You don't get this increasing attachment to anything, an exclusive relationship. God and his people. Now, God reveals himself in that way, and then, of course, as the story goes on, shamefully. You see, even while Moses is on Mount Sinai, having dealings with God, hearing God's wonderful law, the people that Moses is leading are down at the foot of the mountain, and they say, hey, Let's make a golden calf. Let's say, because we, we want something to look at. And let's say this golden calf brought us out of Egypt. God announces, I'm a jealous God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And so quickly, within that, within that very time frame, while Moses is on the mountain, they're looking for substitutes. Other gods... Spiritual adultery. And it happens. It happens to them. It can happen 
in the church, which is why Paul says what he says to the Corinthians. We looked at it briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul speaks of his jealousy for his people. Guess the word jealous is very close to the word zealous. And the two can have virtually the same meaning. And what Paul says here is, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Or it could be translated, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God. Because God is a jealous God. He says, I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's looking at the church in Corinth. He'd brought that, he'd, he'd been instrumental in that church coming into being, and he sees the church now as being engaged. The wedding is when we see Jesus. But now he sees the church is like betrothed uh, or engaged to Christ. And he says, I want that church to keep pure during the engagement. And he said, but I'm afraid for you. He said, I'm jealous. I want this church that I've seen come into being to come finally to be presented to Christ pure. But he says, I'm, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, why does he say that? He says, well, someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He sees a church that's vulnerable. He wants them to be pure. He's jealous over them. He doesn't want to see other things coming in. What's coming in? Well, people are, other people have started to come through. They're teaching other things. He couldn't close the door on those other preachers. They've come in and, and they're bringing a different kind of gospel. They're preaching a different kind of Jesus. They're preaching a different kind of spirit, a different gospel. The, the, the Jesus that Paul has preached is, he said, we preach Christ crucified. And his gospel is of a saviour who is crucified and a, a saviour who says, now if you want to follow me, you take up your cross and follow me. That, that didn't suit the Corinthians. So they brought in some super apostles who had a very different message. Their message was glitzy. It was attractive. It was about success. It was a gospel about triumphing in life, reigning as a king, a sort of gospel that said, if you're born again by, by the king, then you're the king's kids. You're the king's sons. So it's our right to live like that. It's our right to be prosperous. It's our right to have the biggest houses, the biggest cars, the whole thing, because we're sons of the king. And Paul says to them, yeah, now look at my life. He says, I got flogged. I got shipwrecked. We're like the scum of the earth, he says. This is the authentic. They're, they're preaching a different Jesus. And of course, we hear a different Jesus being proclaimed. If you watch God Channel or any of these things, we, we can't close the door on those things. God's people are lapping up stuff about a different Jesus. A Jesus who says, you're wonderful. I think you're terrific. 
The Bible says you've sinned. The Bible says you need to repent. But a different gospel, a Jesus who massages our self-esteem, makes us feel good about ourselves. A different Jesus, a different spirit. And the spirit that they're putting up with and even accepting, he speaks about in verse 20 here in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Just to my shame, I admit we were too weak to do that, being bitingly sarcastic. They're, these super apostles are coming in and just abusing them. They're preaching prosperity but plundering the people. And he says, and you receive that spirit. This is a different gospel. It's a gospel of success. It's a gospel of super apostles. It's a gospel that is wonderfully glossy and attractive. And he says, I'm jealous for you. Jealous for you. With with the jealousy of God. Because I want you to stay pure. So that you can be presented to Christ at the end as a pure bride. Not defiled with all this other rubbish. But he said, you're going after it. You're putting up with it. Jealousy. God is a jealous God. God has loved us for an exclusive relationship. Where we hold to him, where we hear what he says, we, we read what the Bible says, and we're not going to go after another message that is distorted to appeal to people, to be attractive to people. Paul Gives his manifesto, really, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 4 rather, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor we do, we distort the word of God. On the contrary, he says, we set forth the truth plainly to commend ourselves to every man's conscience. There are those who will always distort the gospel. And in our day, a day when we're concerned that the church should grow, and maybe we've got vision for, say, for, for our building here. We, we sit here every Sunday and see 600 empty seats around the top. And we can say, how do we get the people in? Well, let's make the whole thing more attractive. Now, I've heard of churches doing this. They, they put out a questionnaire into their locality to discover people's felt needs. Discover what do the people want. Right, now we've got our marketing strategy. That's what the people want. Let's give them what they want. And so the church becomes a kind of therapy place to, to build people's self-esteem, to, to give them what they want, to make them feel good about themselves, and it's happy. And it, Well, of course we want people to be happy, but more than that, we'd rather they were holy, because that's who God is. And we can't distort the message. We can't play around with it to just appeal to people so that we don't mention sin because obviously people don't like that. And if we speak about sin, then people won't come or they'll, they'll feel uncomfortable. So we've got to kind of present an alternative God. And so often today you hear an alternative God being presented who is very nice, well-intentioned, well-meaning, but basically not able to do very much. He will cheer us up when we feel down. He will kind of encourage us to look on the bright side. 
But he can't actually change anything because he's not big enough to change anything because actually this alternative God is not really sovereign because he respects our free will and he respects our choices. And so really he's a kind of well-intentioned spectator on the world stage. He sees what's happening, but he's powerless to do anything about it. People find a God like that attractive, which is rather bizarre. Because there's nothing attractive about that God at all. Because he's powerless, he's impotent. The God of Scripture is the God we read about who created everything. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? He is sovereign. He is Lord of history. He hasn't abdicated. He's sovereign over our will. He does as pleases him. And he is holy. And but because people have believed this alternative God, then, of course, of course, complacency sets in. Apathy sets in. Because, after all, nothing really matters. Because this God is so well-intentioned and kind of cuddly and nice that it doesn't matter what we do because he's so desperate to accept us. Because really, he is so powerless that he needs us. And so he's never going to point an accusing finger at us. And so, doesn't matter. Let's, let's just do what people do. Let's sin. Well, sin is not really a relevant term. But, yeah, so you're, you're dating someone. Why not sleep together? Everyone else does. It's kind of expected. And God will always, he's a God of grace. He'll always accept us. And uh, if you're a bit dishonest... If maybe you should have owned up to something, it doesn't matter because he's a wonderful God who is so well-intentioned and always wants to cheer us up. No wonder churches are empty. Our God is a holy God and he's a jealous God and he says, I want you for myself. I don't want you going after other things. Paul says, I'm, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He says, I see you being seduced by these lies. I see you hearing another gospel, believing in a different Jesus, a different spirit. He says, I'm concerned. The jealousy of God. He feels something burning in him. Oh, God, keep these people pure. And in that, he is reflecting God. God's jealousy shows the strength of his love. Love that was demonstrated breathtakingly at the cross. And a love, therefore, that he looks for us to reciprocate exclusively. Do you remember that summary of the Ten Commandments that you find in the New Testament? It's in Luke chapter 10 and in other places, but in Luke 10, verse 27... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the Ten Commandments. But notice what it's saying about our exclusive relationship with God. This God who has loved us amazingly. This God who has loved us at the cost of his son's terrible death. Love the Lord your God with, notice the repeated word, all. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's covenant love. That's exclusive. 
And it's the only response that is appropriate. No rivals. Nothing else getting in the way. But, oh God, I love you. God says that to us. I love you. And we don't say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, No, we return love. God, if you love me like that, if you love the church, Lord Jesus, gave yourself up for the church, then we love you. And we're going to walk through life with you. And we will not look elsewhere. And we will, oh God, we never want you to look at us with a jealous love and say, why, are they, why the rivals? Why the other attractions? Lord, it's you. And right at the end, we want to be a pure bride for our wonderful Savior. We know how the story is going to end because we've been told in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 7. Or verses 6 and 7, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. An exclusive love. A bride who is ready, bright and clean, pure. And that's the bride that is appropriate for the Lamb of God and appropriate Because the Lord God is the almighty Lord. He reigns. Not an impotent God. Not a helpless God. Not just a God who stands on the sidelines. He reigns. And he deserves that for his son. That's the goal. Now, the bride needs to make herself ready. In any marriage, it's good to, from time to time, just take stock of how things are going, because things can drift. I know in some churches they will, from time to time, run a marriage enrichment course. Sometimes people have suggested, well, yeah, why, why don't we run a marriage enrichment course? I'll tell you why, actually. I won't say we'll never do it, but I'll tell you why we've never done it yet. I kind of think, I don't feel qualified to do something like that. Because... If you take stock of your marriage, who of us can say, you know, we're in a position to tell others how to do it. We're in a position to help others. Because I have an uneasy feeling that the kind of person who feels, I now am in a position to help other people, is the kind of person whose partner will be looking at them thinking, if only you knew. (laughs) Because who of us is perfect? Now, I have actually spoken with people who run these courses, and they say, well, actually, that is the qualification for doing it. For, you know, if, if you know all the mistakes, then you can help other people. I think it's a bit like getting driving lessons from someone who's failed their test. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> that's why we don't do those things. But it can be a good thing to take stock. How are you doing? And not just to ask yourself that, but to ask your spouse and to just say, ask yourself, am, am I being what my partner deserves? Am I keeping the promises that I made to love and to cherish, richer for poorer, 
sickness and in health, for better or for worse. To love and to cherish. To love as Christ loved. Am, am, I, am I keeping my promises? Has anything or anyone come between us? Or have I ever given the impression that anything or anyone has come between us? How are we doing? It's good to check your marriage. Because complacency can take over. And, and we can just think, yeah, everything's fine. No, 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 no. We need to ask one another from time to time, how are we doing? How are we doing? Well, if we do that in marriage, surely we need to do it with God. Am I being what God deserves? Am I keeping my promises? Am I doing what I said I'd do when I was first saved? When I first responded to God, have I kept my promise? Have I made promises since? Have I kept them? Has anything or anyone come between us? Or have I given the impression that anything or anyone has come between us? If we do that in marriage, which is a good thing to do, how much more do we do it with God? Because the Lord our God, our maker, is our husband, and he has loved us with a love stronger than any married love. It's an exclusive, holy, passionate, self-giving love. And he saved us for relationship. And we've come into that bond. Now, of course, as soon as we say about checking how we're doing, the more sensitive amongst us will start getting introspective. Uh, If I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, do I feel that? And we start analyzing our feelings, and feelings are notoriously difficult to actually analyze, and I would say, don't do it. We're not looking for introspection, but for a decision. And it is a decision. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind. It's a decision that we make. It's, it's the direction of our lives. And it means we will chop out other things. If, if other things have come in the way, you know, what really makes us buzz? It's one of these things that you can notice, and please just hear this as a comment, not as any kind of criticism, but you know, the midweek groups, we call them core groups, as you know, core group. Typically, and I... Generally, I'm doing other things. I haven't actually been in a core group meeting for some while, but let me say, typically, the program will run something like this. People arrive. The meeting is, shall we say, timed for quarter to eight. So by quarter past eight, most people are there. And uh, people kind of come in, and it's coffee or tea or other alternatives. And... uh, That all happens, and buzz of conversation. Great to be together. People are talking about all kinds of things. And then the meeting starts. And the leader will say something like, uh, let's talk about what we heard on Sunday. The happy buzz of animated conversation stops. A silence settles on the meeting, which causes me to ask the question, what are we really enthusiastic about? What is our real passion? The things that we talk about with great animation, 
or the God that we're about to talk about when the group leader says, what about the message on Sunday? Is that what excites us? Is, is, is God our passion or the trivia of all the other stuff? Good test. It's our love for him, a passionate love. Do we love him with heart, soul, strength, mind? Like when we start to talk about God, all right, now this is where we're on my favorite subject. I love God. I, I, I love to speak about Jesus. Or, hmm, right, I uh, can't even remember what it was about on Sunday. And anyway, my mind was, asking, you know, are we taken up with him? He's taken up with us. He's passionate about us. He, he, his heart for us is passionate. And we might say, well, how do you know? Well, look at the cross. See what happened there. See the strength of his love to win a people for himself. Not to be a, a half-hearted people. A distracted people. A people looking for other ways of success or whatever. But no, there are people who love him. Say, oh God, I love you because you first loved me. And your strong love finds an echo in my heart. My love for you is pathetic compared with yours for me. But oh God, I love you. Remember how Jesus comes to Peter after Peter has denied him three times and Jesus has died and now Jesus is raised from the dead and he comes to Peter. And what he has to say to Peter is not a rebuke. And it's, it's just simply that he doesn't even give Peter a strategy or a program or what. He just says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me more than these? That's the issue. He loves us, and we are called into an exclusive relationship with him. And he's jealous for that. He's jealous, and he doesn't want to see us making eyes at anything or anyone else. It's him. He wants a, a, a church in this day that is passionate about him. We're not distracted by financial crises. We're not distracted by the housing market. And we're, we're looking to him, and we're living for him passionately, single-mindedly in this day. Other things can crumble, but we always knew they would. We always knew nothing has substance like God. We always knew that whatever else we'd go for would ultimately just crumble and, and slip through our fingers. Nothing has substance apart from the love of God, and that's what we're living for. And the people who are passionate for God will move gloriously through whatever happens in society because we're won by his love, and we're reciprocating that love. We love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we can lose whatever. Paul says, I've suffered the loss of everything. I count it rubbish. I want to know him. That's a man who is reciprocating the love of God. The eternal God, the creator of everything, has called us out of obscurity to know him. He has provided salvation for us entirely at his own cost. And he says, no, I've won you for relationship. To which we say, oh God, you've got my undivided, undistracted commitment. Because it's amazing, oh God, that you should care about me like that.
and what can I do but love you?